Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, a virtual visit with your doctor. The physical exam, actually laying hands on a patient, can be very helpful in many clinical circumstances, but most of the time you don't really get that much from it. You don't have to examine a patient to come up with a perfectly adequate plan of care. New research shows that while telemedicine is on the rise in the U.S., it's still relatively uncommon. And this week's podcast will explore ways to increase use of remotely delivered medical care among doctors and patients. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Monomiro. Amy, for many Americans, a visit with their doctor no longer requires an actual trip to the doctor's office. More physicians are offering so-called telemedicine services where they provide care to patients via smartphones, tablets, and computers. And states are trying to promote the use of this technology. More than two dozen have passed laws mandating insurance reimbursement for such services. And while telemedicine is being used more frequently across the U.S., it's still relatively uncommon. And that's what we're focusing on in today's episode. A recent study led by Michael Barnett, assistant professor of health policy and management at the Harvard Chan School, looked at the state of telemedicine in the U.S. by examining a dozen years' worth of data from a large private U.S. health plan. That study showed a sharp rise in the use of telemedicine, largely among primary care providers. And despite the increase, the findings showed that it was only used by about 7 in 1,000 patients studied. I spoke with Barnett about the rise of telemedicine, ways to increase its use, and how this technology could improve healthcare for patients in the years to come. So for people who aren't familiar, can you actually just start by describing what is telemedicine? Um, when we talk about telemedicine, you know, what kind of services are doctors providing there? It actually can represent uh, multiple different types of care delivery. I think the umbrella for telemedicine is really any medical care that's delivered remotely. And so I think the classic form of telemedicine that we most often hear about and that policymakers think about is actually a live video conference. So it's basically exactly the same as a doctor's visit, except you're talking with a doctor on a video screen instead of in person. And of course, the doctor can't examine you. Um, So that's kind of the most, quote-unquote, classic form of telemedicine. But there are many other kinds of technologies that could be considered telemedicine. Uh, The one that's most relevant for the paper we're talking about is called direct-to-consumer telemedicine. And this is basically um, a live video conference or an interactive chat you can have with a doctor through an app on your phone um, or on the computer, um, you know, through a website. And that's basically where the patient themselves uh, seek out a doctor and say, you know, I think I have a sinus infection. I'm going to log on to this website, find a doctor, and tell them about it so I can figure out what I need to do. Other forms of telemedicine that we didn't necessarily capture in our paper but also are under the umbrella include uh, what some people are calling e-visits, which is basically um, a visit where you just submit a bunch of information, maybe through a patient portal by email to your physician, and then they uh, give you advice on what to do. And then there's other kinds of uh, telemedicine um, that can be more on the provider end, like PCPs to specialists. And that's something I also study, uh, something called e-consults, where basically the specialist is doing almost a telemedicine visit with a, a specialist to figure out what to do for their patient. Some of the background for this paper is that many states have passed uh, these parity laws, which mandate that insurers cover these different types of telemedicine visits. So can you explain more about what these laws do and I guess what is, has driven this legislation? I think it's like 30-something states. The telemedicine industry and a lot of um, uh, rural medicine advocates have wanted to um, uh, create a more uh, a more uh, 
fertile environment for telemedicine to grow in states. And one of the problems is before these laws were passed, insurers and Medicare wanted to um, basically pay less for telemedicine services because they don't necessarily involve quite the same level of intensity um, they would they would potentially argue. Um, and the point of these laws was to say, if you're delivering an equivalent service, whether it's remotely through telemedicine or in person, they should be reimbursed the same amount. Um, not every state has a parity law that is that strict. Um, some of the states have laws which actually uh, just mandate that telemedicine is covered by insurers. Um, so that if you receive a telemedicine service, they're not mandating what price it should be, but they're saying at least it should be covered. Um, and the goal with, uh, with these laws is really to um, help nudge providers into actually providing these services to make it more financially attractive. And so the, the thinking was that if, you know, if you're a doctor and you're not being reimbursed the same for a telemedicine visit, you'd basically have less incentive to offer that to your patients. Yeah. I mean, you know, whenever a physician needs to decide um, how to pick up a new, make a new investment in their practice, they're going to look at what can I make if I actually, you know, buy all the equipment necessary and get all the necessary licensure and certifications to offer telemedicine services. And if it doesn't reimburse that well, then, you know, they're probably not going to offer it unless there's some other, you know, very compelling, you know, kind of mission-driven reason why they might, um, you know, set up, uh, set up a system. But that, that's not really a recipe for telemedicine to scale nationally. And so I know in this study you looked at this large kind of insurance database to basically kind of assess what, what does the adoption of telemedicine look like across the U.S.? Uh, and, so, and so what did you find there? So some of the key findings. Uh, one was that telemedicine has been growing uh, very steadily over the past uh, 15 years or so, uh, with a particularly steep rise in 2016 that I'll talk about. Um, even though it's been growing quite steadily, in fact, it's sort of a 50% annual compound growth, um, you know, telemedicine was really quite quite rare more than 10 years ago, and so we're only at a, a, a use rate of around seven people per thousand across the, across the country in this particular insurance database. Um, the other patterns that we saw are actually, starting in 2016, there was this huge spike in growth, and it was almost all driven by the use of uh, primary care telemedicine. And it coincided with a few major insurers starting coverage for uh, this direct-to-consumer telemedicine I talked about. So some of the big companies, uh, some of their names are Doctor on Demand or American Well, um, are a couple of large providers, and there are many others. Um, a few other interesting trends that we saw, we had just talked about parity laws, and in fact, there was um, uh, stronger growth in uh, telemedicine for mental health in laws in states that passed uh, parity laws than those that didn't. And um, actually, one of the more interesting findings was a very simple one, which is that when we looked at the scope of telemedicine that was being offered in this insurer across the whole country, the vast majority of it was actually either for primary care or for mental health. And only a small sliver, like around 8% or so, was actually for telemedicine for every other specialty out there. And the reason why that's surprising is because telemedicine is often touted and thought of as a way to get you know, very specialized care out to rural settings or to people who can't otherwise access it. And so to see um, basically non-mental health specialty care be such a small slice was actually quite surprising to us. Um, in terms of mental health telemedicine, though, um, it hasn't grown quite as quickly in the past two years as primary care telemedicine, but it's uh, grown uh, pretty steadily, and its adoption has very different patterns in primary care telemedicine. 
So mental health telemedicine is much more common in regions without psychiatrists and where patients um, um, are more likely to, uh, in regions where the average patient has lower education, it's a poorer area, uh, more rural, the kind of, the kind of um, um, scenario that a lot of people think of as the test case for telemedicine. Uh, on the other hand, for primary care telemedicine, a lot of which is this direct-to-consumer kind of app-based telemedicine, its growth was basically explosive everywhere, and it grew kind of irrespective of, you know, how rural your region was or um, how wealthy the region was or how many PCPs were in your area. It just seemed to grow really quickly everywhere. That's interesting because, I mean, I guess if you live in a rural area where there likely aren't a lot of mental health care providers, you would assume that in those same areas you wouldn't have as many primary care physicians as well. Or is that generally not the case where you tend to see just more primary care physicians? I mean, do you, do you have a sense of why you kind of saw those differences between mental health and primary care? You know, I think physician supply is, I think, you know, the number of specialists in any given area is probably, they're all pretty correlated with one another because there are places that physicians want to live. And there are places where physicians are less likely to want to live there unless they're from there or they have some, you know, really uh, compelling reason to go there. In terms of the difference between mental health and primary care, I think for mental health care, you know, it seems to be more driven by the need to just see any doctor, right? So um, if you have no mental health provider in your area, there's a group of patients who just really desperately need to um, have an interaction with a mental health provider. And uh, telemedicine is, is filling a key gap there. On the other hand, for primary care telemedicine, what we've learned from some research, uh, some research over the past few years from my collaborator, um, Ativ Marotra, uh, who's at Harvard Medical School, is that it seems like a lot of direct-to-consumer telemedicine probably just adds more utilization, more care on top of what people are already getting. And so it just makes it very easy to check in with a doctor about a cold or a sinusitis or uh, you're feeling nauseous. Um, and so I think people aren't using it to replace a primary care physician, but as a more convenient option when they might have otherwise just kind of toughed it out or, you know, not, you know, thought about not going to the office. Yeah, it's interesting because I think of it as like it is more of like a convenience thing. Like it's like an Uber Eats or just food delivery. It's just another kind of convenience based app versus more of the mental health kind of being more of the, the credit, like filling that critical gap of right, care. exactly, exactly. And so I know we've talked in the past uh, about, for example, the use of telemedicine to address kind of issues such as, you know, substance use disorders. So how, I guess, how is telemedicine currently being used um, in that regard? And I guess, how could it be used more effectively to address opioid addiction, things like that? Uh, yeah, so telemedicine for substance use disorder is a big topic. Um, it also featured pretty prominently in the Support Act, which was recently um, uh, signed into law, and which includes uh, a wide range of policies to try to promote um, access to treatment for substance use disorder. Um, so it seems like, at least in this population, um, that substance use treatment via telemedicine is still quite uncommon. Um, so it's actually, um, you know, uh, several fold less common than even mental health telemedicine. Um, again, my colleague Atif Marotra just published a paper uh, looking at substance use disorder through telemedicine, specifically in this population. It's provided by the people you think would provide it, so uh, it's very heavily weighted towards social workers and psychiatrists, but also family practitioners who we're guessing are likely buprenorphine providers. Buprenorphine being one of the uh, most common treatments for opioid use disorder. And um, you know, right now, I think it's it's still it's still very much in a nascent stage. I think it, it's uh, 
it's something that I think is going to grow very quickly. And I think now that um, Medicare is going to pay for it and more payers are uh, trying to create more options for substance use disorder treatment, I think we're going to see more activity in the commercial space, more startups, um, insurers trying to get into it uh, to be able to capture this uh, kind of key treatment gap. From from the patient perspective, is it is it a case too where patients maybe don't know it's an option in some cases and that's why they haven't been taking advantage of it? I'm sure that a lot, I mean, I think it's both providers and patients. I think a lot of providers don't realize that they could actually provide the service if, if they needed to. And also, I think for a provider, you know, how do you attract patients, right? So if I'm in, uh, let's just take an example, uh, you know, let's say I'm in Alaska and I'm in Anchorage and I want to offer telemedicine, you know, how do I communicate that I can do telemedicine in some, you know, some city that's a six hour drive away? Um, you know, I think that's, I think that, I think that's probably, uh, you know, a bit of a barrier for providers. And then for patients, how do they learn about providers? It's kind of a classic marketing problem, right? Like, how do you actually get um, everyone to realize that this service is available and actually um, they can, uh, you know, create something that makes everybody happier by doing it? When, when it comes to kind of increasing adoption of telemedicine, what are some of the technical barriers? I mean, whether it's internet access, whether it's, you know, in a low-income area people might not have, a smartphone to download the app. So what are some of those kind of technical barriers and are there ways to overcome any of those? So for direct-to-consumer telemedicine, um, I actually don't think smartphone availability is really much of a gap anymore because smartphones are, you know, smartphone penetration is huge in almost every market. Um, and, you know, even even in poor areas, there are very cheap um, smartphones that can really run almost any app. So actually, I don't. So that's that's an area. I think that's part of the reason why we see adoption uh, increasing so much because consumers basically can just decide for themselves, and so many people have smartphones, and it's really quite simple. On the provider side, there are a lot more technical challenges there. So uh, a lot of states have uh, fairly elaborate licensing and uh, certification guidelines for being able to set yourself up as a telemedicine provider. Um, the clinic that you are interfacing with needs to have broadband access that can support video if uh, the definition of telemedicine you're using is kind of live video. Um, and so there's just the technology, but, but actually we think it's probably the licensing and the regulatory aspects that may be a bigger barrier because anybody can kind of log online and buy the technology and have someone come and install it. Um, but I think actually getting through the bureaucracy and regulations um, can be a very protracted process um, and takes up quite a bit of energy. And uh, uh, I think a lot, of, a lot of clinicians do not relish the idea of going through that. Is the licensing and regulations, is that kind of more of like a privacy data concern because it's so it's just, just anytime it's a new service you know, type of care, it's just complicated? Yeah, exactly. It's just, you know, uh, departments of public health and um, health and human services, whenever a clinic offers some kind of new service, you need to be certified that your staff can actually do it, that you know how to manage problems with it. Um, I mean, you know, we could argue whether or not these uh, these regulatory requirements are really necessary for safety, but I think the idea is more safety and competence so that a provider is not offering a service uh, for which they, uh, you know, are not able to safely operate it. So, for example, in my clinic, we have a microscope, and we do, uh, sometimes we do, uh, we look at slides uh, to diagnose uh, certain conditions. And we have to take like a competency test every six to 12 months to certify that we can actually interpret the images in the slides. And that's necessary for regulations um, to certify that the physicians in the office actually know what they're doing. Otherwise, you know, we might not be able to use a microscope. 
And as you, you spoke in the beginning, that the, these parity laws are, are I think, seem like a, a step in the right direction in terms of um, encouraging more providers to offer telemedicine because of the changes in reimbursement. But what else can be done, um, either if it's marketing or from a policy perspective, to increase adoption of telemedicine, both providers offering it and then patients being able to take advantage of it and use it? Um, yeah, so I think what we learned in our paper was that um, – you have to think about adoption of different kinds of telemedicine differently. So we don't need to do anything for primary care direct to consumer. I mean that it's exploding on its own. People clear the market seems to really uh, be ready for that convenience care. And whether or not that is a good or a bad thing for our health system is kind of a conversation for another time and needs some other research. Um, but I don't think we need to really work on that too too much. For the mental health side, um, you know, parity laws are good. But I think, you know, if, if we think it's um, an important policy goal to expand telemedicine, we probably have to, you know, inject more resources into actually making it happen. So, for instance, a lot of places in the country that would benefit from telemedicine may not have broadband access. They're, they're rural enough that they actually really don't have a good broadband infrastructure yet. Um, and... Uh, a lot of these places may just not have a provider who knows about it or under, or you know is willing to invest the amount of time and energy to make it happen. Um, and you know, an analogy I think of is back when uh, Obama the Obama first became president and we were in the midst of a recession. They were looking. Uh, the Obama administration was basically looking for quote unquote shovel ready projects to inject. Um, resources into the economy to just kind of try to get things moving on, moving along. And from that came something called the High Tech Act, which is basically an enormous incentive program for hospitals to adopt electronic health records. And um, that really uh, changed, the, changed the game in terms of adoption of electronic health records. And now we're at a point where almost every hospital in the country has an electronic health record. And, uh, and it was really the injection of resources from the High Tech Act that seemed to have really catalyzed that. Is there any concern on the patient end about am I still getting the same quality of care when I, you know, have a telemedicine visit? Or do patients generally seem kind of open to this and kind of willing to try it? Is there any hesitation on the patient end, I guess? I'm not an expert on the patient experience for telemedicine, so um, I can't speak directly to that from sort of research that I've done. Um, I think what I can say really from my perspective as a primary care physician is I think patients really do value seeing a doctor in person. I think that's one of the reasons why telemedicine is still being used pretty uncommonly. You know, it's still less than a percent of people every year in our data set. And I think in America, we do have a lot of doctors, and people are used to seeing them in person. And um, studies on the quality of care of telemedicine have been actually pretty positive. Um, I think there's obviously a lot of value to having that human connection and being able to get to know your doctor face-to-face. -face. But actually, the physical exam, actually laying hands on a patient, um, can be very helpful in many clinical circumstances. But most of the time, you don't really get that much from it. You don't have to examine a patient to come up with a perfectly adequate plan of care. Um, and so I don't think that quality is the main issue. I think it's really comfort level with having medical care without that personal connection with a person who you feel like you can trust. Because it's a very personal thing receiving medical care. You're really opening up to uh, you know, someone who you know, is basically a stranger. So I want to just finish up by kind of going back to something you talked about earlier where I mean, the, the, the telemedicine that's currently being provided is overwhelmingly mental health and primary care and not kind of these other specialties. Um, 
you know, like with substance use disorders, are there other kind of opportunities for telemedicine in those other specialties that you would see if there's greater adoption of telemedicine? Like what are the potential future benefits of this, this wider adoption? So I do think there's a lot of potential. Um, I think the conditions that telemedicine could be best for are, I think, conditions where more frequent contact with clinicians is probably better for your health outcomes. So there are a lot of conditions. I think, you know, there's, I think there's a tendency for us to think seeing the doctor more is better for your health or something like that, right? That it's, it's better to see your doctor more often if you need to. Um, but sometimes a lot of people see the doctor too often or, you know, they're not really getting much from seeing the doctor. There are certain conditions where um, it's probably pretty good to check in with a clinician of some kind um, pretty regularly because things can get out of whack uh, without, you know, before the patient realizes it. So examples of conditions like that, one could be congestive heart failure. It's a common one. You know, we you know, need to actually check people's weight and follow their medication adherence. There have been a lot of different telemonitoring studies for heart failure that have had mixed results, but I think that remains um, a pretty good one. Another one is chronic pain. So people with, people who are chronic pain sufferers, um, uh, you know, their medication needs kind of fluctuate, and they, um, uh, as things happen in their lives and their health goes up and down, they need a lot of help with managing their pain medication. I think that could be another uh, another big um, uh, opportunity. The other thing about chronic pain is actually there's very good randomized controlled trial data that chronic pain can be managed just as, a, just as effectively remotely as in person. Um, another example uh, could be, for instance, in uh, neurology for a follow-up for um, uh, for survivors of stroke or people with epilepsy uh, to understand to be able to titrate uh, seizure medications. Um, another example could be, say, in pulmonology, uh, patients with severe emphysema. So these are all conditions, basically, where things can kind of get bad enough, quickly enough, that people need to go to the hospital multiple times a year. But we think we can potentially prevent some of those exacerbations if people check in with the doctor on a more regular basis. That was my conversation with Michael Barnett about telemedicine in the United States. If you'd like to learn more, we'll have some more information on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. That's all for this week's episode. As we begin a new season, we'd love for you to rate and review our podcast wherever you listen to it, as this will help more people discover us. And again, thanks for listening. A reminder that you can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify.